With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome back to the One Foot Down podcast. This is our 28th episode. I am the One Foot Down Editor-in-Chief, Eric Murtaugh, back as your host. Uh, with me today is a friend of our website. Um, his name is Whiskey Jack. He's a moderator over at Irish Envy, a message board that everyone should check out. How are you doing, Whiskey Jack, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Eric. Okay, so we haven't had a podcast in a while. It's been about a month. Um, our name started spring practice quite a while ago, but I had about two weeks off uh, with a, a break in there. So uh, they finished just finished up their eighth practice of spring, so they're about halfway through. Uh, we have the spring game in another couple weeks. So uh, today, what today we're going to do is basically just kind of summarize what we've what we've seen through the first couple weeks of practice and uh, go through a, a list of questions with you. Is that all right? Absolutely. All right, so the first thing I wanted to throw your way is is basically just a, a pretty broad question. Um, you can take it any way you like. Uh, you can go any number of ways with this question. Is, is And that is, uh, what's been your biggest surprise so far through the eight practices of spring ball? Um, well, I, I'd say the, the biggest surprise for me so far has been some of the people that have been lower down on the depth chart under Diaco, especially on the defensive side of the ball, uh, that weren't able to uh, break out mainly because of the premium that Diaco put on, uh, you know, fitting a certain physical profile. Um, and I, I suppose it, it shouldn't have been that surprising because um, I think a, a lot of people predicted that with uh, Van Gorder's new defense coming in, there was going to be a he was going to put the premium on athleticism and speed. Um, so a lot of the tweeners that we had on our roster that hadn't been able to break out before, um, you know, it, it's I guess somewhat predictable that they would jump to the fore. But um, I've been most surprised uh, with what I've heard about John Turner. Um, you know, uh, Turner was the I think to date is the lowest rated recruit that. Uh, that we've brought in in the Kelly era. Um, he verbaled at a time where we were just desperate for bodies at safety, and you know I never really expected him to do, make much noise other than you know maybe be a, kind of a role player, special teams, that sort of thing. But the fact that he's now uh, been able to make a shift to outside linebacker and kind of find a, find a niche, and you know we, we've heard he's, he's at least taking some reps with the first team, um, that to me has been the, the most surprising thing. Yeah, like you said, that's not really a big surprise. Anytime there's a new defensive coordinator, you tend to see a couple players like that make a big leap forward into a new position or whatever. Um, I think we're going to get into the defense a little bit more here uh, later in the podcast. I wanted to ask you, um, you know, there's really not a whole lot of big surprises so far on the offensive side of the ball, but um, 
you know, to start spring practice, they have Ronnie Stanley at left tackle, Elmore at left guard, and Mike McGlinchey at right tackle. Um, and it doesn't look like that's going to be changing anytime soon. Um, I was just reading some practice reports from today, and everything's pretty much the same. Um, are you surprised with that lineup? Were you kind of expecting that lineup? What are your thoughts on the uh, offensive line? Uh, yeah, that, that was more or less what, what I expected. Um, you know, we, we knew it was going to be some combination of those. Uh, I think there was a question heading into spring practice of whether or not uh, Stanley would stay at right tackle, Elmer might step in at left, and then uh, either Hegarty or Hanratty would step up to take over that left guard position. But it, it looks like uh, McGlinchey is just is uh, such a freak athlete that they were not able to keep him off the field, which I think is a great thing. Slot him in at right tackle, and, and that pretty much made everything and all the other dominoes fall there. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm not, I wasn't really surprised by that uh, so much. That, that, in fact, is what my, my preference would have been going in. Um, looking forward, I, I'm not sure if Hegarty is going to be able to hang on to the center spot. I would assume Nick Martin is going to get, you know, he's going to get the benefit of the doubt when he comes back based on all the experience he got last year. But I don't think there's going to be much in the way of surprises with our O-line. And I, even though we've we've lost, uh, you know, two just uh, rock-solid guys on the left side of the line to the draft, I, I, I really don't have many concerns for the O-line either. Uh, Heastan has just been so outstanding with recruiting and coaching. Uh, we had several important O-linemen go down during the season last year, and you know, the, the O-line just kept on rolling without a hitch. So I, I think that's really going to be a strength for the team going forward. Okay, that kind of segues into my second question here. Um, Steve Elmer was interviewed last night, or after practice yesterday, and said that they're expecting zero drop-off at offensive line. Like you said, you're not concerned about that position. So what is your biggest concern right now on, on the team after uh, these handful of practices? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's got to be a defensive front seven. Um, and I was thinking about this earlier, how, how funny it is that uh, while Diaco was here, we had such a massive, beefy front seven that we had little to no worries ever about stopping the run, at least uh, from kind of like standard power football type teams when we played Stanford and Michigan State and whatnot. But now with this... Uh, that all those guys have gone, the guys that really made that 3-4 defense so, you know, iconic in 2012. You know, Nix is gone, Tua's gone, uh, Calabrese, Fox, Manti, like all those huge players on our in our front seven, you know, that, that we just can't do that anymore. So we've got, uh, you know, BB, uh, Van Gorder's new system in place, and it seems like, at least from what we've seen of spring practice, that they are really focusing a lot on um, situational packages, getting in uh, nickel and dimebacks, uh, you know, practicing third down defense. And from what I've seen on the the videos and what I've heard reported, it I, I don't have a lot of concerns about our ability to defend the pass now. Um, I think with uh, between Russell and and Luke and Riggs um, and all of the talent we have at safety. And, you know, Jalen and Schmidt uh, as the linebackers uh, on our third down package, we're going we're gonna to match up really well with teams that want to spread us out and with teams that like to pass. 
Where I'm concerned is when we play the Michigan States and the Stanfords again, and they are trying to run power on us and wear us out, I don't know how our front seven is going to hold up and stop that nowadays because we just don't have the same type of players we did um, over the last three years or so that gave us a lot of confidence we'd be able to stop that stuff. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, I think they did mention today that they're going to be practicing their 3-4 looks here over the next couple weeks, and it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, who plays where, and you know, maybe a couple of those second-string guys on defense like a Rochelle who might not be getting first-team reps in those 4-3 looks. Maybe he's going to be a defensive end starting opposite uh, uh, Day and Jones, for example. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how they stop those power run teams. Is there anybody that you can kind of look at and say, that guy's probably big enough to help us out in the, in the front seven who's probably not going to be as much of a factor getting after the quarterback in those 4-3 looks? You know, that that's a good question. Um, I, I think Rochelle is the one that really jumps out that is is going to be, you know, for, based on what we've seen at least, you know, he, he's not lighting the world on fire as far as getting after the quarterback, but he, he's big enough and physically mature enough at this point that I think we could bring him in to you know get some additional beef on the line against those teams. I, I liked the breakdown you posted over a couple days ago about how a you know a four three over under works, and that uh, I think you said you expected um, Ishak to actually start as a strong side defensive end um, and Okwara to be the eight tech uh, to basically maximize our horsepower on the line as far as getting to the quarterback. And one way we could switch things up against power teams would be to uh, basically s uh, send Ishak over to the 8-tech and then plug in um, Rochelle at a 3-tech instead. And then that would at least give us a lot more size on the line. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of d different combinations you can do with those lines. Um, it's actually pretty fun when you think about it. Um, I think, you know, you brought up trying to stop power rushing teams, and I think that's a valid concern, and I agree with that. Um, one of the things that I kept thinking about when I was putting together those articles was, you know, who's going to step in and be, you know, the speed rushers on this team? Because when you look at the roster, um, you know, like I kind of said, we're kind of in a no-man's land. We're kind of a, still have some 3-4 body parts and some 4-3 body parts, but when you look at it, we really don't have those, you know, Michigan State type of edge rushers that are 250 pounds and really long and can able to bend. And I think Aquara has kind of the size, but I don't know if he's the type of player that's going to be perfect for that role. Is that is that a concern for you? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, and I, I think I, I didn't realize this or hadn't thought about it until I read those articles you wrote, but I think Eshock is really going to be key to the success of this of Van Gorder's defense this season. Uh, can he successfully two-gap um, when he's at the three-tech? Uh, if we put him out at eight-tech, is, is he going to be able to be that pass-rushing monster that we thought we were getting uh, when we recruited him as a five-star uh, weak-side defensive end? Um, so, you know, I, I think a lot is going to be on Ishak and Okwara at least at first, to see, you know, can they generate the pass rush we need? And if it isn't happening, 
I think we may have to turn to uh, you know some of the freshmen, uh, you know Trombetti, Blankenship, uh, Bonner, those sorts of guys. Um, we we recruited a lot of guys recently in the last two years that have seemed to uh, where pass rushing seems to be their their bread and butter, and I think we're gonna we may see a lot of those guys rotating in and out situationally uh, to try to get uh, make sure we're getting to the quarterback. Um, because we're going to have to this season. We're we're not going to be able to keep everything in front like we used to. So, I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting to see. And if worse comes to worse, you know, we may have to spread some like uh, get much more aggressive with the blitzing and have it coming from you know uh, the Jalen and uh, Collinsworth and various other safeties and cornerbacks. Yeah, that'll be something to pay attention to early in the season. The amount of blitzing versus how much pressure they can get with those front four. Okay, so it's spring ball, so we don't want to focus too much on the negative. Uh, this is the time <laughs> to be super happy and excited. So uh, what are you least concerned about right now with this football team? Uh, well, and it, it's it's not a very, uh, I don't know, it, it's not a very interesting answer, but I'm not worried at all about the offense. I mean, you can you can go through our offense unit by unit and, you know, offensive line looks like they are not going to miss a beat. I, I assume, like, on the left side of the line, uh, Zach Martin was just an incredible technician for the, you know, all four years he was a starter. So I'd imagine they're, they're, the, our, um, the pass protection might drop off a little there, but I don't think it's going to matter so much because Golson is going to be a hell of a lot more mobile than Reese was. Um, so that should at least be a wash. Uh, wide receivers, you know, we, we seem to have a, a, a deep, fast, really talented group. Um, that they all bring something kind of different um, to the core. Uh, running backs, you know, I when was the last time we had uh, this much talent on, in the top three running backs with uh, Bryant and Fulston and McDaniel? I mean, I, I think we probably had it briefly when we had uh, Jonas Gray and uh, Sierra Wood. But uh, I just I really have no concerns there. Uh, Folston showed us what he can do last season. So did McDaniel's really reliable, and I, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect big things out of Bryant. Um, and then quarterbacks. I mean, what can you say? Golson is seeming to be as good as advertised. Uh, you know, the the time he spent with George Whitfield seems to have really paid off. He's put on weight. He's come back more mature. Has a better understanding of the offense. I've been pleasantly surprised to hear how good uh, Zaire has been and how much he's apparently pushing Golson. Um, it, it's apparent that he's he's going to be he would be a different kind of quarterback. He's obviously doesn't quite have the arm that Golson does. Isn't as polished of a passer. But from what I've seen, he's just a a really natural, polished, fluid, strong runner. Um, so if if Zaire, if Golson, you know, even with the added weight, Golson's still not a big kid. I would expect over the next one, two years, he'll probably get knocked out a little bit here and there. Zaire will get opportunities to come in. Um, I'd expect the offense to be much more run and option oriented when he's in there. But, you know, I, I just, I can't point to anything on the offense that has me concerned in the least. So lately there's been a couple interviews with Malik Zaire where he's expressed a pretty supreme confidence that, <laughs> he, he wants to be the number one starter. I know some of the stuff has been taken out of context, but uh, do you like the confidence that he's showing? Are you a little worried that he's going to be kind of 
you know, depressed if he doesn't start this year? No, you know, we uh, we we kicked this around on Irish Henry for a little bit, and when the 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 bits of that interview got posted out of context, we had a couple people post and. They were worried that, you know, oh, God, uh, you know, our, our quarterback curse continues. Zaire's not going to start, and he's going to transfer. I, I don't get that impression. I, I think Zaire is, seems to be really big on that kind of visualization, self-visualization technique you see a lot of times. Uh, you hear about from motivational speakers, and you see you hear about in the business world where, you know, you, you really just need to have supreme confidence in yourself and project yourself where you want to be, and you keep doing that until you're not, and then you just keep working for it. Um, like I said before, Golson is is not a big kid, uh, even with the added weight. Um, you know, Reese got plenty of playing time in 2012 while Golson was starting. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I just I think Zaire is going to get enough playing time this year, either hopefully in blowouts. Uh, fourth quarter, a, a few times when you know Golson gets shaken up and he needs to come in, and I, I don't, I can't see how he could potentially put himself in a better position by transition uh, transferring, because he is the clear number two at a you know a, a national prestigious program, and I can't, he, he's not going to be able to transfer and step into a position that's as good or better. Um, at all, so you know, I I think it's just kind of his uh, a motivational technique for him. It's a reflection of his supreme confidence. I think that's great, but I really don't have many concerns as far as uh, you know him being a threat to transfer. All right, so we kind of brought this up a little bit earlier with the first question. Um, you know, the early winners of this new system that Brian Van Gorder's been uh, installing so far. Uh, three players that stuck stuck out: um, linebacker Joe Schmidt, um, John Turner, who transitioned from safety, who's now at linebacker, and James Onawalu, who moved from wide receiver to safety, but is kind of playing linebacker it seems in some of these sub packages. Um, my question to you is: Do you see their this rise that they've had this spring? Do you see it seeing it uh, continue in the fall? when we really start to amp up for the regular season and there's some extra bodies there and some guys are getting healthy. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think in general it's a reflection of the fact that Van Gorder's defense is much more friendly toward um, hybrid tweener type guys and that we're putting a higher premium on athleticism than on just hulking size, which I, I think is great. Um, and I would add a couple names to that list and say, you know, we haven't heard a whole lot about him yet as far as practice goes, but I would expect guys like Utupo and Rabasa and other types of guys like that to have a better shot of significantly contributing going forward than they had under Diaco because they just didn't have the size needed to come in and fulfill the, the roles they were recruited for. Um, that said, you know, there's always a little bit of fool's gold in these... Um, uh, these spring practice reports. I, I wouldn't at all be surprised if you know we we saw little to nothing out of John Turner or Onwalu. Um, you know, once we actually get into the season, who, who knows? Who can say? But I, I do think we are going to see at least probably two or three guys that most of the fan base had written off as nothing more than depth players 
uh, really rise to the top with this new defensive scheme and seriously contribute. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I'm kind of in wait-and-see mode with Turner and Anwalu. I think I'll, I'll believe it when I see it in terms of them playing at linebacker. Um, you know, when you look at kind of the options at, with those nickel and dime packages, I don't know if I would really necessarily go with them with a lot of those looks, especially with, you know, Cody Riggs coming in and yeah, some of the depth at corner and, and at safety if they can get, you know, some of that stuff worked out at safety. Um, maybe if they're looking at some sort of a jumbo 4-2-5 looks against certain teams, maybe, you know, Michigan State, you know, on, on passing downs, maybe they would want Turner or Anwalu out there. But, um, you know, Joe Schmidt's kind of an interesting case. He seems to have locked down that Mike spot so far in the spring. Um, I know there were some notes today from practice kind of saying, or maybe it was from Kelly's press conference saying that uh, something along the lines of the, the freshman will get a look at that Mike linebacker spot in the fall, which kind of signals to me that, you know, they like Schmidt now, but that's still kind of an open position. But what, what's your take on Schmidt? I know a lot of people are kind of concerned with his size. He's only, you know, a little bit over six foot, 230 pounds. It would seem unthinkable for him to be an every-down type of player for Notre Dame, but um, do you think he can be a starter at that position? Well, uh, you know, he, he may end up starting against Rice if, you know, Morgan isn't ready to step in right away. Uh, so he, he may end up being there for a while. Um, I don't think it's going to happen long-term. Um, you know, his, his size just works against him there. Uh, it, he's a great story. I love Schmidt. Um, he was a huge help for us last season as well, especially after uh, Grace went down. Um, and it seems like of the middle linebackers we have, Schmidt has consistently been one of the best in coverage. So I could see a continuing role for him in our uh, in our nickel and dime packages where he is maybe the only other linebacker on the field with Jalen when we're mainly subbing in other uh, defensive backs. But no, I, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think he is likely to stick at middle linebacker. I, I think he, he's likely to just keep it warm until Morgan's ready. And then Morgan will step in. I don't know. Maybe one of the other guys will be able to slot in there. Uh, Randolph definitely has the size for it. I don't know if he has the sideline to sideline speed or the ability in pass coverage. Um, looking at our, our roster, it seems like a lot of the guys that we had at linebacker, just because of Diaco's preference for size, project really well at strong side linebacker, but we don't we don't have a lot of guys that have the, I don't know, the, the, the sideline to sideline speed and the agility um, necessary to be a true Mike in a 4-3 over-under. Um, so that, I guess if that would be one of my biggest concerns with the front seven is who is going to fill that role long term. All right, so we, we found out today uh, Jarrett Grace had another rod inserted into his leg. Um, Brian Kelly mentioned that they'll know in six weeks whether he'll be able to play in the fall. He still seems pretty optimistic that Jarrett's going to be able to come back. Uh, what's your sense with that injury? Still pretty concerned about it? Yeah, I mean, it was gruesome. Uh, when your leg breaks in four places, uh, in I don't know. Grace is still walking around with a noticeable limp at this point. And, um, you know, someone on uh, uh, our message board mentioned that last year when you saw, you know, Danny Spond walking around with a cane, 
in spring practice, even though they were kind of holding, hold, uh, you know, holding a candle for the chance that up, oh, yeah, he, we're, we're confident he, he's going to come back and recover and be okay. Everyone who saw him in spring practice, you could just tell he was done. And I'm I'm getting the same kind of vibes from people that have seen Grace in spring practice. I hope that's not the case. Um, I think you know he with his experience alone he would help a lot at middle linebacker. I think he might be a great option with his size as well at strong side linebacker. Um, but no, I, I would be I would be shocked if he plays this year at all. I expect him to take a medical this year, and we'll just have to pray he comes back uh, next year and is able to play. So do you think that's the route you don't want to maybe bring him back in November, maybe try to get a sixth year of eligibility out of him? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, strategically, I think that's a good thing to do for roster management, but I, I don't think he's going to be physically able to contribute this year at all. So I don't think it's even going to be much of a strategic decision. I think they're going to have to sit him because he's not physically able to contribute this year. Uh, and we're just going to have to pray that after his medical this year, he's going to recover uh, over time and be able to contribute for us, you know, in, in 2015. But I don't know. I, I'm not optimistic. Okay. All right. Our fifth question. Uh, do you think that's – do you sense that there's been a smooth transition to the Brian Van Gorder defense? Um, I do. You know, it, it's it's hard to tell uh, through these – what we get because obviously – Spring is a time for infinite optimism, and uh, you know it seems like every program across the country, you know, they've got a new strength and conditioning guy, and everyone's buying in more before, and they're bigger, faster, stronger, blah blah blah. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, sunshine being blown around. Um, but that said, you know, it, it sounds like it was it was kind of time for Diaco to move on, and the players are really responding favorably to Van Gorder. And based on the scheme he wants to implement, I, I think it's the right thing for our roster. Um, I, I think we really would have struggled uh, in this year if Diaco had stuck around and we were still trying to play his a very conservative 3-4 that puts such a premium on you know these behemoth defensive linemen and massive middle linebackers because we just don't have the personnel to do that anymore. Um, and it was becoming apparent even last year that we were, you know, there were some cracks in the facade. So, you know, I, I think there's going to be the normal growing pains that there always are. Uh, some of that is going to be uh, by design, schematically. I think we're going to get to the quarterback and uh, pressure defenses, um, create negative plays and turnovers far better than we we ever have in the Kelly era. But at the same time, I think we're going to see a lot more in uh, as far as uh, – Big chunk plays we give up, and that's just going to be part of the process. You know, an interesting thing that Brian Kelly said yesterday was that they were planning on making this transition to a more aggressive uh, defense, even if Diaco was still here. Do you kind of buy that line from the coach? Uh, you know, um, yes and no. You know, I, I think the Kelly saw the need for that, and probably a lot of the other coaching members. And from what I've gathered. Uh, Diaco was just really not interested in changing his scheme or or trying to to get that way, and I think that's part of the reason that the early season experiment uh, in 2013 of trying to blitz a lot more and bring a lot more pressure was just so unsuccessful. Um, one because I don't think Diaco was really interested in doing it, and as a result, you know the 
the schematic level changes to make that work really weren't implemented. And that's why our blitzes were so always so obvious and we seemed to be so predictable and you know, we were just getting blown up by screens and other things because uh, you know our guys were telegraphing it every time they came up to the line. So I don't know. I'm. I, I think it was. It was a good change, and you know, things will. The defensive arrow is pointing up, heading into 2014. But I expect that there's going to be the, the usual growing pains. Okay, so you said you don't have many concerns on offense. Um, now, if you were to pick a handful of players, maybe two or three, that are sticking out to you, that heading into the fall, you're buying all of their stock up. Who who would those few players be for you? Well, I mean, uh, Golson is kind of a cheap pick, so I'll, I'll leave that one alone. Um, let me see. I, I, I think uh, Koyak is probably going to have a big year. Then again, I, I, we've been saying that for the last two years. You know, we expected him to be the one to break out behind Eifert two years ago, and it, we expected him to be the uh, – you know, many of us expected him to be the primary um, – pass-catching threat from tight end last year, and then it being Nicholas. But I, I think this year, Koyak is 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 finally the guy. He knows it. He's the number one. And I expect this to be the year that he really breaks out and continues that tradition of of uh, tight end dominance at Notre Dame. Um, you know, other guys, you could you could kind of take your pick among the the receiving core. Um, we've seen some really good things out of Chris Brown in the. Uh, in the practice videos, he is looking really sharp with his routes. Uh, he's burned uh, Kavari Russell several times, which is uh, a serious accomplishment when you hear of how how good he is and has been doing. Uh, Will Fuller, you know, looks to be like uh, TJ's heir apparent, uh, except probably uh, faster and even more explosive, just really smooth in and out of his cuts, an excellent route runner. So... You know, I, I, I expect, on the offensive side at least, that it's our receiving core that is really going to pleasantly surprise some people. All right, I share that optimism. I really can't wait to see how this offense looks in the fall. We're going to wrap up the podcast here, kind of transitioning to a bit of a different topic. Uh, we're going to talk about the National Labor Relations Board ruling on the Northwestern football player case um, that, that happened this past Wednesday. Um now, for our listeners who aren't really familiar with it, I'm sure a lot of people have read stories about it. Uh, basically, what happened was this Chicago district of the NLRB ruled that the Northwestern football players are, in fact, employees of the university, and therefore they can unionize. Um, most of the experts expect you know, this isn't going to be solved for maybe two or three years, possibly longer, as... Northwestern University is going to appeal the decision, and this could go all the way to the Supreme Court. And, um, you know, you still have to see if the Northwestern players would vote for a union, and who knows what would happen after that. Um, this decision only applies to private universities, um, and there's also other districts um, of the NLRB throughout the country. And then, again, it's up to all those pr football players at those different private institutions. So... You know, there's a lot of different routes that this could go. Um, there's, you know, state laws for the public universities, and that just throws a whole other wrench in this plan. But as we said, or as we will be saying, by the time this podcast goes up on our site, we'll have our Hitting the Links post up on this as our main story for Sunday. Um, you know, this is kind of 
not really a landmark case as much as it is, you know, a signal that the future is going to be different, even though that future may not arrive for five to ten years or whatever. Um, I know this is kind of right in your wheelhouse um, for your day job. So, uh, <laughs> what 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 do you think? What, what what's going on in your mind with this whole case, and you know, kind of what you see in the future, and you know, do you see this as a good thing, an inevitable thing? Is it time for the NCAA to negotiate, or? Well, I, I do. I definitely think it's time for the NCAA to negotiate. Uh, I don't think it's inherently a good or a bad thing. I think it's a very dangerous thing. Uh, when you read a lot of commentary out there from prominent college football, uh, you know, columnists and whatnot, there there's a whole lot of people that really just want to blow up the system, and they feel like the NCAA, the uh, the member programs are just incredibly corrupt, and they're exploiting these kids, and you know, they, they have a good point in that for a whole lot of programs that are really not holding up their end of the bargain to truly educate these kids and make sure that they graduate with a degree, there is a certain level of exploitation that's going on. You know, the, the head coach is making millions of dollars, the AD is making millions of dollars, the school is raking it in off endorsements. Um, you know, th those players' likenesses are being included in, you know, uh, video games and... The, the schools are profiting and the kids are not. So there is a case to be made there. I don't think the arrangement is inherently exploitative. I think schools like Notre Dame and Stanford and really even Northwestern are, are giving their football players a, failed, a fair deal because they're, they're getting a world-class education um, that other people willingly go into six figures of debt to, to obtain. Um, and as long as the schools are holding up their end of the bargain to educate the students. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, that said, um, you know, I, I do think this is going to force the NCAA to kind of sweeten the deal and change some things. Uh, I don't think they're going to put uh, football players on salary. Uh, that would create way more problems that it would solve. The, the things that the, uh, the, the, the players at Northwestern are trying to get are, are pretty reasonable, at least. Um, they want schools to be able to provide a tuition, room, and board up to the cost of a f attendance figure that each school reports to the uh, Department of Education. For whatever some strange reason, um, the full-ride scholarship that the, these players get through the NCAA usually falls a few thousand dollars short of that amount, which is part of the reason we, we always hear stories about, you know, players are, are too busy to get a side job and they, they don't have enough money to fly home when there's a death in the family and they don't have enough money to, like, buy a suit and go to an interview, that sort of thing. That, that would help alleviate a lot of those concerns. Um, and, so you know, they, they want things like uh, lifetime disability coverage for injuries sustained while they're playing in college, um, you know, a certain amount of money that gets put into a trust account for each student uh, that they will collect upon graduation, you know, th those sorts of things. Um, and th there's certainly going to be impacts on college athletics overall because to implement even some of those modest proposals, there's going to be uh, serious consequences under Title IX. Um, so I, I don't know. You know, I, I think it's, it's going to cause the NCAA to wake up and say, you know, we need to take the initiative here and 
basically offer to negotiate with the students and not wait to get an unfavorable ruling in court somewhere and have it forced upon us. Um, I, I was interested to hear Kelly's take on all this. Uh, I, I hadn't seen the interview at first, but on somebody brought this up on the message board that Kelly talked about this subject on the Dan Patrick show about a month ago, and Kelly actually saw it as a an advantage for ND because the NLRB only has jurisdiction over private schools, and there's only, I believe, 19 private schools in the uh, football bowl series, you know, Division One. The vast majority are public schools and are not affected by that. And the ability of the players to unionize in any in any given state is affected by state law and not federal law. And a whole lot of states, especially in the South, have right to work uh, laws, uh, meaning that those students will not be able to unionize. So if that allows you know the Notre Dames and the Stanfords to offer a much more attractive compensation package, if you will, to recruits. Than you know the the Michigans and the Alabamas and the LSU's that's going to have massive implications for uh, the balance of power in recruiting and you've got to believe that uh, the you know those big public schools especially the ones in the SEC are not going to stand for that for long so you know I, I think it's it's going to be it's only a matter of time now before um, things are going to get much better for college football players in Division One. All right, those are some good thoughts on a pretty interesting and uh, diverse topic. Uh, I want to thank Whiskey Jack for coming on and hanging out with me on this podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. Anytime. All right, hopefully we'll be back in another week or two as uh, the Blue Gold Game's coming up uh, in two weeks from now. And uh, this is our 28th episode. I'm Eric Murtaugh. That's Whiskey Jack, and we will see you later.